0: Well good morning friends, I want to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats as we continue with our uh, teaching time together this morning. My name's Brad, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge and so if you're new or visiting it's our privilege to have you with us this morning and uh, we trust that if you have any questions you can talk to Denise at the Welcome Center and she'll make sure she can answer anything uh, that and point you in the right direction for anything. Well, as we move into our teaching time, I want to remind you that this spring uh, we have been studying together in the book of 1 Corinthians in a series called Messy Church. And that's because the title comes from the place that just life together in community gets messy. It just is. Relationships in a faith community get messy. Working out what we believe together gets messy. Relationships and topics uh, can't get stuffed into neat and tidy categories and, and forced. It's just messy when we live together in this kind of a world. And so we just want to acknowledge that and live together in that. And today we come to one of those topics that is really messy in the sense that it can be fairly contentious for people. And it tends to be a messy topic, so churches either shy away from it altogether and don't talk about it, don't take a position on it, or it's been used in other senses um, where people have experienced a lot of hurt as a result of it. And so hopefully today, as we walk this out and live this out together, you hear a little bit of uh, our heart, and we're going to look today at the role of men and women together in ministry and in leadership. How do we live together in places and in spaces that are faithful to scripture, that are consistent with our convictions, and give opportunity for the gospel to advance in our day and in our time. And most importantly, how do we do all of these things while we also live with graciousness towards those who come to different conclusions and hold our own conclusions with humility as we look at different interpretations and practices? So this is hard work. I'm not going to lie to you. This is hard work to live together in the messy places of uh, life together. And as we progressed in our teaching series in First Corinthians, one of the things that we've seen come up over and over again about the church in the first century in the city of Corinth is just how different these people that were living together in community really were. I mean, they were different in about every way you could possibly imagine. They had diverse backgrounds uh, culturally. They had different understandings of what it meant to worship. They had different understandings and different places of maturity in their faith. They had different heritages uh, and practices that they brought into the life of the faith community. And they were so diverse and so different that often this caused controversy. And in some ways, not much has changed since the first century then has it. They were all trying to follow Jesus together but they just had different lenses that they were looking at certain issues with, and this created a sense of mess in their life together. One of the biggest challenges that we've seen over and over again in Corinth and in 1 Corinthians is that the big thing that their differences were meant to enrich their community together, but instead these differences kept tripping them up because they kept putting these differences into places where they didn't belong and elevating them. And one of the things that this became very evident in was they were, right right at the beginning of the book, they were fighting over different leaders who was more important and popular. They were acting proud over how they were liberated from all of those old-fashioned rules and morality. We don't have to follow any of those things anymore. We're free in Jesus, and we can do whatever we want. And one of the ways that this negatively impacted the church was in their public gatherings, because they carried that attitude of, I'm going to do whatever I want, into those spaces. And so in chapters 11 to 14, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to write to this group of people and say to them, "Listen. There're some places where mess is good. There're some places where you guys are really messy and I got to give you some corrective instruction here." And so he begins to give them some clear instruction about public worship gathering. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to give you fair warning That when I say that this is messy, there's probably no more hotly contested 16 verses of real estate in the entirety of the New Testament. And so it's unlikely that we will solve all of your questions and controversy this morning. But at least we want to press into some of these areas, and then we can have further conversations and point you to some resources that might help you in the conversation outside of our time together this morning. So let me read for us as we look at 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 11, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. Paul writing to them says, I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you're following the teachings that I passed on to you. But there is one thing that I want you to know the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should just cut off all of her hair. But since it's shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory, and woman reflects man's glory. For first man didn't come from woman, but first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, But woman was made for man. And for this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show that she is under authority. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, talking about created order in Genesis 2, isn't it... (coughs) Uh, Sorry, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. So judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair, and isn't it long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, so obviously they wanted to argue about it. In our day and time, people want to argue about it. If anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say, we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. Okay. I don't know about you, but a lot of questions come to my mind when I read this text. So much of it just sounds to our ears as foreign and strange, and it just seems um, just like it's just from another time, which it is. So we got to wrestle with that. But Mandatory head coverings for women, long hair for guys being suspect, short hair for women being dishonorable, women being under the authority, language of headship, lots of asterisks and alternate interpretations in your Bible if you look at the bottom, in the footnotes, in the study Bible, say all kinds of stuff. What in the world is all of this about? Well, We're going to look at this text, and then uh, we're going to explore it also through the lens of personal story. And so I've invited a good friend of Jericho's, uh, Pastor Leanne McAllister, if she'd come and share her story in a few minutes. And hopefully that'll give you a little picture on what it looks like to live some of these things out together. So again, we may not get at your level of satisfaction in terms of drilling down into some of this. And I'd be happy to have a great conversation with you outside of the context of our morning together. But let's look at this text and see what it is that Paul said. So let's look at what is he talking about when he talks about head coverings? What's up with this suggestion that people should cover their heads, women should cover their heads in worship? Now, some groups still do this, um, like closed brethren churches, for example. And in the first century, covering your head in worship was mandatory for women. It was a Jewish tradition, had centuries of practice associated with it. And intriguingly now, in our day and time, if you think about Jewish tradition, men actually cover their heads, right, with a skullcap in worship, and that's a sign of respect. But at this time in history, worship was almost always totally segregated or separated. Men and women were totally divided, sitting on different places in the worship houses, and men were the only ones who were allowed to speak, and women were supposed to wear veils and listen in silence. So picture this in the church in Corinth now. We have people coming out of that setting, and they've come and heard a liberating message of the good news of Jesus that, like Paul says in Galatians, in Christ there's neither male nor female, there's freedom, there's liberty from the restrictions of the law. So they're coming into worship together. And in the city of Corinth, people are responding with repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit is being poured out as they gather for worship. And women begin to engage like never before. And they begin praying, and they begin prophesying, and they begin teaching and preaching. And for a lot of people that are together in this family, that's a really, really radical thing for them to experience. Think about a Jewish male who has has this notion in his head for centuries of how worship is to operate. And he's brand new to faith in jesus and walking in obedience what that looks like to follow jesus as messiah and he comes just a week out of his old experience and then comes to a meeting in corinth and all of a sudden everything is so radically different it's just completely deconstructed for him and it becomes an obstacle for worship It's so radical that women should even participate in public worship. And these women are not just speaking. They're leading public worship. They're leading singing. They're praying. They're prophesying. To that brother, this is so unsettling that it it becomes a place for them where they, they can't quite get there in their worship. And some of the women, we understand from Paul's writing a little bit later on in chapter 14, some of them are actually conducting themselves in public worship in ways that are inappropriate and in ways that are actually unnecessarily flaunting social conventions. And so Paul needs to give some instruction to his friends in Corinth and says, listen, I need you to understand, there's nothing inherently moral or immoral about head coverings or hairstyles, but there is something underneath that. There's an attitude that's taking root in your public worship gatherings that Paul feels the need to write to and speak to. And it's this attitude that says, I will do whatever I want in public worship regardless of what that means for anyone else around me. This sense of complete independence and individualism. I'm here for me and it doesn't matter what the rest of you get out of this or not get out of this. And how my attitudes or how I carry myself might disrupt or inhibit those around me. And Paul's saying, some of you are coming in, both women and men, are coming in with a complete disregard for the thoughts and feelings of other people in worship around you, and that is not appropriate. And so he says to them, listen, what has been intended as a place to unite, a place of public worship where the focus ought to be on Jesus and about what he's doing in our lives and in our world and how he's calling us into mission, this time of prayer and learning and preaching has become a place of strife and division because of this attitude that's taking root. And he speaks to this in the same way, just a few verses later, about the Lord's Supper and talking about some of you just come, you just fill yourselves up with no concern for what other people are here for and experiencing together. And so this place of strife and division is what Paul is trying to speak to with head coverings and give them some instruction that would help them step back from that place of personal preferential worship and help them understand, consider the thoughts and feelings of others around you. But I do want you to notice what Paul does not say in this text. He does not say... That woman should not prophesy, pray, lead, or teach in a public worship setting. He doesn't question it. In fact, quite the opposite, he encourages it within a particular constraint and an attitude in a way that exhibits self control and deference to others. Like Pastor Keith talked about two weeks ago when we talked about the Corinthians and how they were operating related to food that was sacrificed to idols. He says, you need to operate with this sense of awareness of how others around you will perceive your actions and your attitudes. But in this case, he doesn't say to them, and therefore women should not pray, preach, or prophesy. He says, no, when they pray, preach, and prophesy, they should do it in a way that would be honoring to those around them in a way that would release the gifts of the Spirit in the church. So Paul doesn't say they shouldn't. He just encourages it within a certain way. Second question about hair lengths. What in the world is Paul after here? Why is he so amped up about long hair, short hair, shaved hair? Let me deal with this fairly quickly. One, uh, other than contemporary Western cultures, most cultures in history have had norms related to gender. And part of that has been associated often in history with hair length and different genders, different hair lengths. Men have tended in history to have shorter hair and women have tended to have longer hair but in Western cultures that's not the case anymore we see it as much more an expression of individual style and personal preference but in Corinth in the first century they were still operating under a different set of norms several regarded first century historians write that remember we talked about in Corinth one of the things that was happening is this is a city that has this hypersexualized culture and in this culture then men who were involved in same-gender homosexual relationships indicated this publicly by wearing their hair longer. And if a woman was involved in a same-gender lesbian relationship, one partner would indicate this by wearing their hair much shorter, more like a masculine hairstyle. And on top of this, then Jewish tradition, if you look through the Old Testament, one of the things that's talked about when it comes to a person who's committed adultery is that their hair would be shaved off. And so in Jewish understanding, if you have short hair or shaved hair, that's an indication of either an action sexually or an orientation that you're a prostitute. And so uh, women would wear their hair to signify their profession or their actions. And so hair length was not at all an expression of personal style and preference it was a sexual and religious statement in the first century that you were making. And so with that in mind, you can see how Paul's instructions about hair length begin to make a little bit more sense. He's saying, listen to them, listen to me. If you do things uh, like that and wear your hair in ways, you're creating confusion out there in the culture because people think, wait a minute, isn't that person a Christian? Aren't those Christians known for... A sexual ethic of monogamy between husband and wives? Well, why does that person wear their hair that way then? Why is that guy's hair long? Or why is that woman's hair short? Because what they were doing signified something quite different. And so Paul was saying to them, you need to be aware of how you carry yourself. And if we were to think of situations in our culture today, there's certain things that you can do, either with your hair or personal style, that signify religious or sexual uh, expression so uh, if we put up a photo what is what does this uh, mean if someone's wearing that particular piece of clothing means they are a they're a priest yeah so if you see that you have a whole set of assumptions someone wearing that a whole set of assumptions that would go along with what they are wearing what about this next picture What would you assume about this? What could you assume about this person? A monk. Yeah, their head is shaved. They're wearing uh, orange, which would either signify that they're from a Buddhist or maybe Hare Krishna tradition of some kind. And so there are ways in which we can carry ourselves that signify a bunch of things to a watching world, to our culture. And there can be sexual or religious connotations to that. How we dress and how we carry ourselves does communicate something. And so Paul seems to be saying to both men and women in Corinth here, listen, I need to remind you people about how you are acting towards one another and how that then translates out into the world. Because the world is watching you and the world is getting very, very confused messages from you about what it means to follow Jesus. So beyond those elements of consensus in this text, consensus breaks down. Then it starts going into all kinds of different places. And people have studied this for centuries, scholars on all different perspectives, and have come to vastly, vastly different conclusions. It can get pretty crazy, especially when it comes to the discussion of uh, what the word head or headship means in this text. This is one of the most hotly debated words in the New Testament because we are actually not 100% sure what Paul meant by this particular word or using it. That's why in your Bibles there's like crazy amounts of footnotes. It could mean source, it could mean physiology, it could mean created order, all kinds of different expressions in different places that that can go. But I would suggest for us that even if we can't get 100% clarity in our minds as to what the word head or headship might mean, translated into English, can I suggest that the overall emphasis of the passage is clear, even if we want to argue about semantics. Because whatever Paul meant by head or headship, he's talking about submission. And whenever he talks about submission, he's always talking about it in the language of mutuality and mutual inter Dependence on each other. In Ephesians 5, that was in our life journaling this last week, we talked about that. In Galatians chapter 3, he talks about it, verse 27 and 28. Whether he's talking about husbands and wives, whether he's talking about men and women serving together in the church, there's always a fundamental interdependence that he's driving at in God's family. And there's a sense of humility that ought to accompany that and a sense of respect that ought to be present. In chapter 11, verse 11, Paul says, really, what's the thrust of the passage? But amongst the Lord's people, women are not independent of men. So, again, he's sort of wrapping up his thoughts and saying, we don't just come in and do whatever we want, carry ourselves wherever we want. And men are not independent of women to lord it over them or to create structures that would support patriarchy or anything of that nature. He says to them, there's a fundamental interdependence and respect that ought to be present. Well, how do you do this? How do you actually live this out? Here at Jericho, in the spring of 2009, we worked through a study uh, of a lot of these texts, and our elders led us through a constructive tension of analyzing biblical interpretation, our present context with respect to this question, and the roles of men and women, uh, and that was a helpful and constructive exercise. We invited all views to be expressed. We invited questions. We explored it together over the course of a spring. And we asked that everyone's perspective be driven not only by, uh, not just by personal experience or by emotions, but by theological convictions together and how we would live together. And our dialogue was called uh, Women in Ministry Leadership. And we studied the hard passages together Uh, We explored personal experiences, backgrounds. We asked each other to put down our presuppositions that we brought to the texts and invite real and honest and open dialogue, which was hard to do. We worked hard to listen to each other. We didn't always get it right. It was messy. And we began to ask each other if we could identify the way in which we wanted to live together around this issue. And so we came to a position. Our position paper is up on our website if you want to have a look at that. Uh, But we came to just a few kind of underlying convictions as to how we would live together around this topic. And the first underlying conviction that I just want to remind us of together, because I don't assume that everyone was with us in that process in 2009, so this is a good time to kind of revisit some of those things together. The first conviction that we came to was no one is going to hell for getting this wrong. So whatever end of the spectrum you come out on, however you choose to live this out, this is not an issue where we would look another person in the face and say, brother, sister, I'm deeply concerned for your salvation. I think you might be on the wrong path on this one. This is not a primary doctrinal issue that we're going to fight so deeply about because we feel like this is so core to some of the key elements of who are called to be as Christians this is not in one of those closed-handed places so by saying that it creates a bit of a different construct for the dialogue to happen hopefully is that we can be gracious with each other because we know that it's not a core issue where your salvation is in jeopardy if you get it wrong and so we've kind of come to the conviction that Jericho we may be wrong on this we may be wrong on the position that we have taken on this particular issue, but that's okay because it's not one of those issues that is so core that if we're wrong, we really are convinced that to be wrong would be of eternal consequences for us. The second conviction that we've come to is that not having a position about the issue is actually a position about the issue. And so we decided that, you know what, it's messy. It's going to be messy, but we're just going to roll up our sleeves and wrestle this through as a community together. And we're going to do it in the spirit of saying, what is, where do we land on this? And it w- what would seem right to the Holy Spirit and to us as we work at understanding God's word together? And so we wanted to address this because this is a topic that gets a lot of conversation in the Christian community here in North America these days. And so we wanted to actually come to a place where we were not unclear about where Jericho landed as it respect to these texts and our experiences together. And then the third thing is we just agreed, you know what? We can graciously agree to disagree. We've wrestled with our lens on this stance, we've wrestled with the texts of where we've come to, but we're also deeply committed to grace for one another and a gracious spirit of respect in ongoing relationship, both within the life of Jericho and also from Jericho to other people that come to different places than we do. There's room for Jericho, for you here, Jericho, if your convictions differ on this issue than the stance that we have decided to take. And that attitude, I think, is an important one to remind ourselves of is that this isn't something then that we feel like, okay, we've got this solved, we figured it out, and now we just need to export this to anybody who will listen to us in the sense of stridency and militism. We just need to continue in a posture of grace and humility and continued relationship with those who come to different conclusions than us, different churches, different people in our families, different people within the life of Jericho. And so you might be in a place where you're still exploring and thinking about this issue. And I want to encourage you to head to our website and look under the Women in Ministry Leadership resource section. There's reading lists on there. There's audio on there. uh, There's our position paper. Uh, We invited people to speak from all ends of the spectrum and their experiences. And as we went into that, uh, one of the things that I found profoundly helpful to me in that discussion was to hear the stories of people who have wrestled with this personally and wrestled with it biblically and theologically. And so this morning I want to invite you to hear from a good friend of Jericho's, Pastor Leanne McAllister. Some of you know her from the Free to Lead conference uh, that you were at at at, uh, Living Waters uh, last fall. Leanne's been on staff at uh, Living Waters over the years and has transitioned to a role with the Global Ministries arm of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. And uh, she and her husband Darcy call Langley home along with their three adult children. And uh, so we want to invite you to come and share just your journey with us and share some thoughts and reflections uh, that you have from your own experience with this. All right, so thanks.
1: just to appreciate the opportunity to share story. It's interesting to to hear theology. Theology is just figuring out how you work it out. Um, But then when you put that with story, it puts flesh to it, right? Um, I have a picture of my family because in order to understand me, you have to understand my family. I've been married to my husband Darcy for almost 26 years. Exactly. Uh, Now, I love this picture of Darcy and I on the left-hand side. That's actually taken about two months ago. We were preaching together at a church on the Sunshine Coast, and when Darcy and I minister together, we we actually preach together. We both stand up here and we preach together, and sometimes we disagree with one another as we preach. It's kind of an interesting thing to observe, but he is my partner in ministry. He is I wish he was here today, but he's got other things that that uh, he's involved in this weekend. but we have um, understood our marriage, understood our ministry, understood parenting all that has been us over the last twenty six years in with the understanding of this mutual mutuality and submission and I have to tell you i I'm having the time of my life being married to this man because we really champion one another and champion God's work within each of us. Darcy would just be annoyed if I didn't go for it with all that God has for me. And so he's just my, uh, my greatest supporter. On the right there is our three kids. We are part-time empty nesters. What that means is from Sunday night until Thursday, it is heaven. Where Darcy and I are just enjoying our life and then everybody comes home uh, with their laundry and they join us there. Anyway, it's all good. So we work in international mission for the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. Uh, Darcy is um, uh, the personal and family life director for our denomination's global division. And what that actually means is we look after missionaries. Best job in the world. I direct something called Zoe Projects, which connects Canadians with the work that our global workers and national partners are doing specifically with women. We work in four key areas of health, economic empowerment, sex trafficking, education, all with the heart for spiritual transformation. Because Jesus is the hope of the world. Amen? Come on, I'm Pentecostal. Amen? Okay. so. Guys, there's something you need to understand. It is confusing to be a woman. Girls, it is confusing. In North America, daily, we're, we're fed contradictions about what it means to be a woman. We, we, we are under a barrage of mixed messages that, that we receive every day. Of, and if you open your eyes to it, you'll see it everywhere. You can see it in advertising. You just need to read a few blogs. You see books, uh, what it means to be a woman. Uh, On one hand, we're constantly told that we're supposed to be sexy. But on the other hand, if you're too sexy, oh my word, be virginal. Uh, On one hand, we're told, be powerful. I am woman, hear me roar. And on the other hand, it's like, whoa, slow down, girl. There's this, this message that a good woman sacrifices herself for the sake of others. Oh my goodness, put us on a pedestal, shine a glowing light on us. But on the other hand, we're told to put ourselves first. Now I, I think it's confusing just in regular life, but I think it's even more confusing in the church. Now I'm going to speak from my perspective. I'm an ordained minister with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. Uh, But I have Mennonite roots, I have to tell you that. My uh, maiden name was Taves, so I feel like I belong here. But my tribe is officially egalitarian. What egalitarian means is that, that gifts are given not based on gender, but as the spirit would give gifts. And so on paper, that's what we are. But sometimes, if you look at our practices, we're actually more complementarian. For example... We ordain women, but some of our churches don't allow women to pastor or be even on church councils, church boards, things like that. Uh, I'll go to big events of our tribe, and I'll notice that there's there's no women that are leading or speaking at, at these events. We send women overseas all the time, and we go, oh, go for it, girl, and yet we hold women back here in Canada. Uh... We, the mixed messages we give to our young women—we uh, tell young women to dream until they graduate from Bible college, and then there's no, there's no uh, avenue. Okay, people are like, uh-huh, ha uh-huh. ha. So I don't think we're that unique. I actually think in evangelicalism, we actually give lots of mixed messages about women, to women. Now Brad had had said we all come with these different lenses. I call them pre-understandings. A pre-understanding is that, that understanding that you have that is probably unconscious of just how the world works. It's just the way things are done. And we all have them when we come to any kind of subject, but particularly when it comes to women in ministry leadership. So how do we get these pre-understandings? Well, what were you taught about women's roles? What did you see your mom doing? growing up? If you grew up in the church, what kinds of things did women do? All of those things, we bring those observations and sometimes they're conscious, a lot of times they're unconscious and we bring that to the subject today. So I want to tell you a little bit about my story as a woman in ministerial leadership. I grew up in a Christian home, actually in the Okanagan, in a church that affirmed my gifts as a young woman. I had a youth pastor that gave us all, male and female, opportunities to lead and learn and grow. I started leading worship at the age of 12. I mean, that was just, we were just thrown into the deep end. And I didn't have a terminology for it then, but what I understand now was that the church was egalitarian, believing those gifts were given as the Spirit gave them. And we were to receive those gifts. And in fact, um, there was an expectation that people would use their gifts for the kingdom. You had a responsibility to do so. So in my world, I would see pastors who were male. But I would also see guest preachers that would come in that were female and just incredible women of God. I didn't realize it then, but in retrospect, I can see that the church was on the cutting edge as they invited women onto their church council in the early 80s. And I remember the conversations around this um, decision, and it just seemed like a no-brainer for our community. Now, while we didn't begin ordaining women in PAOC until 1984, our history is rich with incredible exploits of women. Someone uh, mentioned CLA this morning. CLA was uh, planted by two women that also went on to plant Living Waters, the church that I pastored at. So it's important to give you this background because it definitely shaped my thoughts around call. It gave me permission early to pursue leadership, and if I had to pinpoint a moment of the call... I would think back to a time when I was about 14 years old and and the senior pastor thought it would be great to do an exchange with the youth. Long story short, the senior pastor went down to speak to the youth and I was sent up to speak to the adults. I have no idea what I said. I can't imagine it being that deep. But in my mind, I remember. It was this moment where I felt like I was touching a part of my future. I went to Bible college to get educated, but also to find a man, truly, because I felt this call to ministry. I didn't want to do it alone. I I really wanted it all. I wanted a marriage. I wanted a family. I wanted a ministry, and then I met Darcy, and we got married, and our first Uh, appointment in ministry was right here in the Fraser Valley and it was just an awesome church that didn't put us in a box but allowed us to to um, begin to understand ourselves begin to understand our giftings and then gave us the freedom to pursue it then I had a baby named Nick and we moved up north and the next year I had another baby named Robin and life changed dramatically for me. I mean, babies are cute, but you have to raise them. I, I didn't really put that together, that, wow, this is like a two-decade project. Anyway, um, so my my focus went from full-timed, full-on ministry to hearth and home. And it's funny, because I, I struggled within myself, because that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a mom. I didn't... I, I wanted that so much, but at the same time, I was resentful of Darcy. I thought his life was awesome and that my life sucked because there I was at home with these kids. I felt like I was, I was missing out on real life. To all the young moms out there, you're not missing out on anything. And it sounds like a really bad, like, pad commercial, but there are seasons to a woman's life Anyway, enough said. Um, It was during this time that I realized that um, not everyone was keen to have women in leadership. And honestly, I go through life like a puppy dog. I'm like, you like me, right? Right? You like me. Don't you like me? Like, to me, it's just bizarre that someone wouldn't like me. And then suddenly here I was up north and I realized, oh my goodness, not everyone sees it like I see it. I got a few bumps and bruises along the way. I remember being in a Sunday school class that I was covering for the senior pastor. It was an adult Sunday school class. And someone walked into the class and said, who's teaching today? And I said, I'll be teaching you. And he got up and he left. I can tell you stories about that where it was quite wounding. There was no role models for me because uh, I I would see women preaching, but it was almost like they set aside their femininity and preach like men. And I just couldn't relate to it. I I wanted to be a wife and a mom. I I, I wanted to be feminine. I I wanted to be in ministry, but I didn't want to work with kids because I don't like kids. And I didn't want to work in the WM, that's women's ministries, because it was just too pink and fluffy for me, and and the whole idea of becoming a counselor, let's just say when I was on the pastoral staff at Living Waters, I was known as the bad cop. (laughs) My counseling skills are get-it-together, people. So what do you do with that? What do you do when you have a call but no avenues? It was difficult years for me, and I actually thought, am I not really gifted? Am I not gifted and people aren't (laughs) gutsy enough to tell me that? Am I that person on American Idol that's like, whoa, and they're like, they're tone deaf? Like, honestly, that's the point where I came to. I I I started uh, looking into secular fields where I could use the skills that God had given me. I found some success there, but I just came back to the call. God would not let me go. I ended up pastoring at Living Waters. It's a neat, long story. I served there for 10 years and just until last spring. And it was there that I finally got to develop what I knew God had placed in me. I'll never forget, I was the interim pastor for almost a year. And uh, my first communion service. My husband's behind me playing bass. And I'm like giving out the emblems like I've seen my whole life. And then I turn around and say to Darcy, what do I do next? <laughs> See, how do you develop something unless you're given opportunity to develop it? See, I believe that the church in Canada is filled with women who are gifted and called. Filled with women who are called into areas that maybe women have not traditionally served in. And and there's no avenue for their expression of the gifts. And I tell you, we need to capture this. We need to capture this, this crazy depth of resource that's there, but it's untapped. So how do we do that as a community? Number one, we need to start naming women. We need to start naming them. We have a responsibility to name what we see in the sisters. And this is a responsibility of the community where you together discern. So you look for gifts come to a woman and say, did you know that you actually think really strategically? I see that in you. Or, or did you know that people listen to you? People follow you? People come along when, when you say, let's go this way? I see leadership in you. You know, so then when you name them, then you start to, to look for the call. How can this gift be used? What is God stirring up within you? What is he saying to you? And then affirm it. We need to begin naming women. Secondly, we got to give opportunity. We need to give meaningful and meaty opportunities in leadership that match that gifting. How do we learn? We learn by doing. You know, people say, We're all, where are all the female preachers? Well, clearly, girls can't preach. Well, no, not necessarily. They're not given the opportunity to learn how to preach so that they can rise up. Women also need to step up. You know, women have the responsibility to acknowledge the gifts that God's deposited in them. The, co- the, the community names it, but women need to receive it. And I just believe that, that God can't use what we won't acknowledge. And, and women write themselves off all of the time. I, insecurity, focusing on the wrong things, uh, having a vision that's way too small. I'm sorry, girls. Hearth and home. Stay at home mom, 12 years? I mean, I get it. But that is not the sum total of your life. There is more that God has for you, more for you to do. And so we need to have this this bigger vision. We need to step up into it. Sometimes stepping up means bumping into barriers and being misunderstood. I'll never forget someone saying to Darcy... Wow, your your wife likes to wear the pants in the family, hey? Because he was a pastor's husband. I'd invite you to look into my marriage and to see the mutuality and the love and the uh, calling each other on. It hurts why is it so important? Why is releasing women so important? Well, it's God's plan. If we read the creation story, men and women together were blessed and given a shared mission. If we read in Genesis 2.18, he says, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, so it's not good. And the solution to that problem is going to be a woman. I will make a helper who's just right for him. Now, when we read the word helper, Traditionally, we've, we've read that as helper, as in like sidekick, as in that, that sweet little one that comes alongside and kind of helps out when she can. But if you look at the original language, the original word here is ezer, which means one who shares all the roles, assists, particularly when someone can't do it. It means a strong power. It's actually a word that's used for God himself in one of the Psalms. It's a strategic partnership drawing on the uniqueness of the genders. Now we know the partnership was interrupted by sin. We, we know that story and the antagonism of the sexes began, but here's the good news, my friends. is Christ came to restore and redeem all that had been lost, He came to restore the relationship between us and the Father, but he also came to restore relationships between you and I, between men and women, restore our identities as image bearers and kingdom builders. Together, it's God's plan. It's also important because we need to be an example to the world. I just believe this. I work with women internationally. We live in a world that's steeped in misogyny, honestly, hatred of women. You see it across culture, 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 a hatred and a hostility towards women. You see it with sex selection abortions, you see it with um, gender-based violence, etc., cetera, etc, cetera. human trafficking, vulnerability, exploitation. And here's the thing: The gospel is good news for all. The gospel is good news for women. The church of Jesus Christ should loudly proclaim the freedom that women were created for. Women around the world need to hear this gospel. They need to hear the good news. They need to understand who God's created them to be. Whether it's in Cambodia or Ukraine or Zimbabwe or Willoughby. Our neighbors need to understand their identity and who they are to to understand their value, their worth, their destiny, that they're not second-class citizens, that it's not okay to use them, that they're not simply commodities. They are people who God has his eye on. I believe God is restoring the daughters. And he's using the church of Jesus and men and women together in partnership to bring the life-changing message of the gospel to do it. Amen.